This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Everything is more exhilarating when you're on your motorcycle, just like your bike is more protected when you choose Progressive Motorcycle Insurance. They offer coverage for your bike, starting as low as $75 per year, and they keep things affordable with discounts like paid in full, multi-policy, and responsible driver. So raise your kickstands and get to quoting at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. $75 premium is for state minimum coverage. Not available in D.C. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Dan, you've got a terrific bald head. Thank you. It's absolutely marvelous. It's it's beautifully formed and cute. He's got a great head shape. My mom said, you know, uh, God made so many perfect heads and the rest he covered with hair. So, she wanted to make me feel better. That's what moms moms do. Moms do that, yeah. Marshall was pointing out that you have a beautiful head and I look like I'm... A potato. Stan, have I introduced you to Brian Murray no. and Dan Frega? Dan, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? 100%. It's Frege. Frege. No, it's, it's Gaga. We, it, we didn't know whether it was thing. Gaga or fra, Fraga or fra, fra, It's Frega, like Ray Gun yeah, or, yeah. or... Like uh, Frega yeah, Boom, Frega Boom, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let me introduce you to Brian and and mine is mine is Murray. Yeah, these are the uh the exotic pronunciations. <laughs> what is that behind you? Uh, th- that's a piece from a, one of my properties. I'm just going to rotate through imagery of mine while we're talking as opposed to you guys see this wall oh. behind me that's been scuffed by my desk chair. Oh, so you're going to... I'm actually... Yeah. I'm yeah, on the mountaintop in San Francisco right now. Oh, you're now. actually there. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's Wait, so what's <laughs> happening with your contour then? It's just a little little green haze. <laughs> oh, sure. Brian. I should have wore a green shirt. When you just drank, your cup disappears. Yeah, it tries to remove the Starbucks logo. Oh, is it because of the logo? Yeah, I got I got the same cup. But look, oh, mine that's doesn't disappear. I just spilled it yeah. on myself, oh, trying shit. to look cool. <laughs> I like it when this happens. This is the and we are recording, right? Let's just check again. Is everybody recording yeah. now that Stan spilled? I, I was trying to look at how cool I look in the camera, and I completely missed my mouth. Well, <laughs> that that is how right you. Th- that's the how-to of cool. I like oh. it when the chaos begins because it gives me that feeling of being back in elementary school when things started to go wrong in class and the teacher was getting upset and the kids were having a great time. Um, I have different <laughs> memories. I was the one causing the trouble, Marsh, so it's it's a little different for me. Also, I don't remember grade school that well. I have difficulty oh. remembering my last job. Yeah, well, you, you black out <laughs> certain things that were traumatic <laughs> yeah, like a lot of my a lot of my youth. <laughs> yeah, most of elementary school gets lost to that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now that we got that out of the way. Yes. Well, <laughs> what about the people behind the names? Well, I've known Dan for about ten or fifteen years. Dan, I met you, I think, back at uh, longer. 
I took one of your courses mm -hmm. in, uh, I believe, 2002. Okay, and so then, it's been that long. Uh, and then I, Justin Sweet did a demo in 2003 that I went to in the spring of three. Yeah. So, and I've been to a couple of your courses too. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But I didn't really meet you through Brian? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> no, in fact, the, we, the very first time we met was through email because I had bought your DVD on drawing animals and I emailed you about how much I enjoyed it. Well, that's kind of you. That was like 2001 or 2002. It was back when you were a youth. Marshall, yeah. I thought you would learn by now that everybody you know is your student. Brian isn't my student. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, we, we went to the college together. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, but I don't know. It's just, it's been uh, almost, I guess, Brian, you're the very first one. And it seems like a pattern now where Marshall tries to introduce someone and they end up actually being his student. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. And he's forgotten. Again, right? And he has forgotten, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I took your class last year, Marsh. <laughs> now, now, Brian, I've known for about 37 or 38 years. And uh, mm. I remember he used to spend time in my studio, even when I lived with my parents. Is that correct? Yeah, we had the upstairs oh, yeah. studio at the, uh, the house in Anaheim. And oh, yeah. so, I got to see Brian when he was first a comic book artist and starting to do all sorts of stuff after that. So, the first thing I, I want to get at is what your history has been uh, f in the industry. Brian, you want to go first with the with key projects that you've worked on over the years? Okay. Um, past comics, you know, did Young All-Stars way back when, uh, worked at Image, did Supreme colored uh, many of the extreme books at a Liefeld studio, Rob Liefeld studio. Uh -huh. Did TV boards for Babylon 5, uh, CSI, a number of other franchises, many, many movies over the years, including all the Riddick movies, recently Spider-Man Far From Home, uh, Ready Player One, Solo A Star Wars Adventure, Jungle Cruise, Space Jam. Did a bunch of Tony Hawk skateboards. That's kind of of note. For two or three years, I did about 50% of Tony's decks, mm -hmm. including the the Hawk uh, skull head that's uh, he's been, you know, it's been very popular. All right. What about you, Dan? What are some key projects you've worked on? Uh, I started at Image Comics with Rob Liefeld, creator of Deadpool. Uh, worked with him, worked at Marvel on Wolverine and Spider-Man over at DC. I did Powerpuff Girls and Superman. I left working in comics to start storyboarding. I worked on movies like The Transporter 2, Fantastic Four 2, uh, The Fighter with David O. Russell. I've also storyboarded music videos with Taylor Swift, Destiny's Child, Justin Timberlake, uh, and directed uh, a bunch of animated features for Mattel, and currently storyboard on Doom Patrol Legacies and Stargirl. Nice. Didn't you work on those uh, those Ricky Gervais uh, animated yeah. bits? I did. I did. Uh, yeah, I directed two two seasons of the Ricky Gervais show. You, di so you directed them. Did you actually do any episodes. of the animation? No, there's a crew that that has the animation. But okay. yeah, directing is is uh, you know uh, achieving vision through multiple people and having you know marching towards the same same destination. You're directing all the artists in a direction. Correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. Good. Now, it's funny. Dan had mentioned his work for Mattel. I'm now doing a job at Mattel, which is conceiving and boarding out a logo bumper animation. Uh, Mattel is creating a 
film division. So this is designing their sort of pull out from the the Disney castle that goes to the Walt Disney logo before each of the films. Mm-hmm. I'm designing that for Mattel now. Okay. Well, there's something interesting going on here. You guys both started in comics and then you moved into other... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, disciplines in the entertainment industry? Storyboarding. Storyboarding. Right. Yeah. I'm hearing uh, comics, storyboarding, directing. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dan, you've, you've done writing. Brian, you're working on a thing on your own. I am interested because people in our audience have asked about the comics industry and how you get in and also about animation and how you get in. So, I'm interested in hearing some stories about how your jobs happened, but also some things about how the, the jobs differ. Tell us first how about, uh, about how you got some of your first jobs. Okay. Uh, so, just really wanted to get into comics more than anything. So, was sending my... I would, you know, back in the day, we didn't have what these youngsters today have with the internet. So, I would go to, you know, the, the print shop and Xerox multiple copies of my samples and send them to every single publisher that I could, I could find. Mm-hmm. First job, I got the Marvel job, the David and Goliath job. Mm-hmm. From there, I think uh, Neil really gave me my first big job after that, and that was Miss Mystic. Now, this is Neil Adams. That's correct, yeah, who was really, as far as I'm concerned, the reason I became an artist. It was his work that moved me so passionately as a kid that I, I knew this, I wanted to do that. I was, I was very lucky for that realization and very lucky for Neil's eventual tutelage as well. Went to DC, did comics for DC, eventually went to Marvel Studios and did some animation cleanup backgrounds for like Rudy Nibris and Alex Nino. That was, I was an awful, I was a terrible artist, but lucky to be surrounded by these, these giants who were not just incredible artists, but gentlemen, uh, compassionate. They, we all, all were you know, friends. It was a great, great experience. Mm-hmm. Nice. Brian, before we continue <laughs> with your jobs, Dan, can you tell us about some of your earliest jobs and how they happened? I was uh, one of the very first hires from Image Comics. I met Rob Liefeld in uh, 1989 before Rob became Rob Liefeld. He had just come off of doing some annuals and Hawk and Dove. And Did he change was, his last name? Oh. Oh, so I know what, what you're saying. I know. I mean, I mean, <laughs> like, oh, I get it. you know what I'm saying? Like before he was <laughs> yeah, the brand name of Rob Liefeld. Uh, but, uh, that was a joke. I'm sorry. It, I'm yeah, sorry. no, I get it. I, I was I'm like, what, what does he mean? No, it's, it's not Liefeld. It's Liefeld. No, I, uh, I used to do a cable access television show when I was a kid called Comic Review for You. And I, and I happened to get a portfolio review from Rob. And it was such a, uh, well thought out and constructive, actionable, review that I thought, man, this guy is great. And my friend happened to buy a sketch from Rob that was on the back of Rob's personal stationery. So I basically cold called him. I would constantly send him faxes and updates of my work in hopes to get some more information and, um, you know, where to work on things, kind of like a a consultant yeah. or like those old, you know, the, the famous artist course, but free, uh, you know, I do, I do my samples, send it off and he would say some things, but I also got information about the comic business and things like that. But I got hired about six months after graduating from high school. It's the first time I met Brian. I met Brian in February of 92. Uh, it was when CNN had come to interview the image guys 
seven guys who had left Marvel Comics to form this company and take the reins. So I started there. I uh, worked on a lot of those books. Then I left and did some some work for Marvel. I worked on Spider-Man, Captain America, Wolverine. I did uh, a creator-owned book called The Gear Station where we had done something kind of new. I had created all of our backgrounds in uh, CGI. We had created all of these sets and lit these sets and I would do layouts, but then I would set up the camera, render it out, and then hand draw the figures that would go in. From there, I I worked on Superman. DC wasn't very uh, honest or forthright. The editorial there had basically, I was their plan B on something. I felt very disenfranchised. And I, I left comics. I was pretty upset. It was also around the time, and, and this is something I always tell people, I, I said I'm basically the Forrest Gump of what I do. And what I mean by that is I kind of lucked into getting Rob's phone number. I lucked into getting into storyboards because I saw what Brian was doing. And while I was working on Wolverine, I met this musician named Pharrell Williams <laughs> who, who... Before Dan... Yeah, I know. See, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start getting Forrest Gumpy real <laughs> yeah. quick. <laughs> Can I ask a question about Brian? <laughs> Sorry, Dan. I just want to. Oh, I don't want to go back again too when it's too late. Brian, so you said that uh, you were a horrible artist when you when you got those first jobs. These are your words, not mine. I'm just going to trust mm. you on this. Yeah, yeah. How does a horrible artist get a job at Marvel? It, it's really more that I was not ready. Maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I could draw, but it was a struggle to get the drawing to where I wanted it to be. And also, Dan and I have talked about this a million times. One of the difference between, uh, differences between storyboarding and comics is with comics, you're on the line. Your name is on every line, basically. So, there's a lot of psychological pressure to represent yourself. With boarding, you're designing the sequence. It's much more about designing a sequence that a team of people is going to take through a process. Mm-hmm. And your signature isn't on the end of that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that weight in comics, and I think it's just my own ego problems, my own esteem problems when I was younger, that weighed very heavily on me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting into that job at Marvel, it was it was just difficult. It was difficult on a lot of levels that, especially at the time, I couldn't even really put my finger on. All I thought going into it was, as long as you can draw, you're okay. And it's, there's so much more to being an artist than just knowing how to draw. You did Supreme, too. I remember that being one of your, your the characters you did a lot of. Uh, yeah, that was a, during the Image Comics boom. That was, uh, that was probably, yeah, I, I got into some TV boards just before that. And then uh, Rob had gotten on to X-Force. And he said, hey, you know, we're having a great time over here. Why don't you come, you know, work on this stuff with us. Uh, and I think Dan was probably involved with this at the time, too. He was starting up other projects, like he had Image in mind. It wasn't really Image at that point, but he was going to do a what was going to be a big Teen Titans relaunch, and that became Youngblood. And my memory is only so good, so this is, <laughs> this is all going to be just, you know, somewhat accurate. Anyway, so I joined him, did some work on X-Force, and rolled right into the beginning of Image, colored most of his books for the first couple of years, as well as wrote and drew the first, you know, eight or 10 issues of Supreme. Uh, After that, went back into films. Brian, before Uh, we talk about films, I want to get back to what Dan was talking about. Sure. I met two musicians. One one was Chris Kirkpatrick from NSYNC. So, that was one, one key factor. The other was meeting 
Pharrell Williams, people know who he is now, but back then he was a producer and had this group called NERD. He saw my work and said, Hmm. I would love for you to help me realize this animated project. So I helped him out with character designs and budgeting and, and, you know, kind of learned along the way, but the the project fell apart and he felt that. Oh, it didn't get released? No, no. Uh, it was, I was about it, to look it up. <laughs> no, it was for Fly or Die. It was, uh, they, they ended up, the label uh, shifted gears right near the release, right as we were going to go into production. And uh, Pharrell could tell it really took the wind out of me because I was doing it pro bono up until like when when it was fully, the funds were greenlit and I could hire staff up and everything. But um, it fell apart and in our discussions, he had heard me talk about what a big fan I was of music videos and commercial directors. And he ended up introducing me at one of the shows to a, um, this commercial director, music video director named Paul Hunter. I had never done a storyboard before. Uh, you know, I'd talked to Brian about them, but I never really looked at them. So when I got the job from Paul, it was for this Reebok commercial. I stayed up for 24 hours straight drawing these frames that I drew to look like comic book frames. Uh, production called me and they said, well, we, we want you to work on this JCPenney ad and we want you to, you know, and next thing I knew, this, this one production company, HSI, was hiring me for all their jobs. Around the time I was working on Superman, I was in Las Vegas with my friend Chris uh, he's the one that was in the group in sync, and we went to the premiere of the Italian job. This guy comes up to me, and I find out through talking to him that he's Jason Statham's manager. He says, well, I know what your friend is doing here. He's in a pop group, and I, I know what my client is doing here, but what are you doing here? Uh, I said, uh, well, I'm his friend. He said, no, 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 no. What are you doing here? And I, and I go, what do you mean? He says, well, what do you do? I said, I, I draw Superman for DC Comics. We talked a little bit about storytelling, but he asked me what I thought of the first Transporter movie. And I said, I really liked it, but I felt some of the scenes were disjointed. Most specifically, the there was a fight inside of a bus. And I said, there was this sort of staccato nature to the editing. And then it, two thirds into the fight, it sort of fell apart and it didn't feel right. And he said, how could you know that? Jason was upset that fight was supposed to be this certain way and they chopped it up and he hates that scene. And what would you have done? And I said, well, it was kind of musical in the way that it was edited and there's a lot of motion. And I said, but then it broke and all of that fluidity was gone. And he said, "Uh, have you ever done storyboards? I hadn't yet. He said, well, if we ever make a sequel, I'll give you a call. So then I had already been storyboarding commercials and things for about a year. I got a call from that same same guy. Nice. <laughs> uh, but that, that was my first movie. So from there, I, I started doing some movies. I worked on this, and this is probably the most important movie I ever worked on, even though it's one of the least known. This movie called ATL. It was shot in Atlanta in the summer of 2005, and I was asked to do double duty. They had asked me to draw the storyboards, but also the main actor who's played by T.I., the rapper Tip Harris, his character was an aspiring cartoonist. So they asked me, I had to create a new style, pretend I was another person and create this style 
uh, for on-camera artwork. So they would put it on camera and he would kind of doodle over my thing. So anytime you saw the artwork in the movie, it was sketches that I had done. So the reason why this, this, this particular film is important is four years later, I got a call from my producer, a guy named Craig Canold, and he says, I need you to do it again. I said, do what again? He said, we're doing, we're filming this MTV pilot for uh, this guy named David Katzenberg and Seth Graham Smith, where we're going to need storyboards and we're going to need you to be a 16 year old kid who loves anime. So we need you to draw in a teenage anime style uh, for on-camera artwork. But the concept of this show it was called The Hard Times of R.J. Berger, and I'm, I'm going to use some language now because it is the concept of the show, but it's that this nerdy kid, through circumstances of his pants falling off during a basketball game, the high school discovers he has a 14-inch penis. So this is, this is the concept of this MTV show. Where's my mute button? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Great daredevil back there. So there was this piece of the pilot where uh, he had this sort of intercourse with this foreign exchange student and they felt like it was perhaps a step too far and that they would have a hard time getting it past execs and we were eating lunch and one of the producers said why don't we do what kill bill did remember the Orenishi animated sequence where her parents die and it was super gory and super bloody and we're like yeah and they said they did that so they could keep their r rating they they otherwise they would have put it beyond so they did it animated everybody at the table looked at me and said do you know how to do animation i nodded i did not i mean i read i read the press and blair book and i knew how to use after effects but i didn't know how to animate but i said sure so they they gave me a budget of of five thousand dollars i created all of the assets i created all the backgrounds i created all the puppet pieces i hired an after effects artist paid him half my budget and when the pilot got picked up, they said, we're going to need you to do this 11 more times. But what we, what we want to do is every time he tells a story, whatever the subject matter is, we want that to dictate the animation style. So if, when we go to this brother talking about the Iraqi war, we want your animation style to look and feel like Waltz with Bashir. When he talks about when he has crabs, the name of that episode is The Deadliest Crotch. So we want like The Deadliest Catch, but we want it to look like Popeye. So I, I ended up having to do 11 styles, but because of the nature of the schedule, it wasn't like do one, finish it, do one, finish it. The schedule was very much like three episodes were happening at the same time. So I partnered with a production company called Wild Brain. They did a lot of really good work. They did some kid shows, Yo Gabba Gabba, um, and they had also done season one of the Ricky Gervais show. We got picked up for a second season, so I had to do a whole whole new 12 episodes of 12 different styles. And when while we were working on that, the, the general manager of Wild Brain had reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in doing some boards for the Gervais show. I said, yeah, that would be great. Let me get some samples together. But I had called Marge up and I said, Marge, listen, I'm so sorry, but I wasn't able to get the, these boards together for you. And she said, listen, forget all of that. We lost our director. I think you would be great. <laughs> so I go in there. They ask me 
how I would make the show better and different. I said, when I was working on this NERD project, one of the things that I insisted upon was to shoot video reference of Chad, Shea, and Pharrell because I wanted them to move like them. Everybody moves different. Everybody has different gesticulations and things when they talk. Since the Ricky Gervais show is three guys in a uh, podcast situation, there's tons of footage of these guys and the way they move and the way they laugh. And I said, I would have my animator study that. Well, the producers love what I had to say. So I had to go meet with the, the execs at HBO to get sort of vetted. Brian, back to your work in films. What movies did you work on? Oh, sure. Uh, the Riddick movies, those were of note because of the relationship with the director and Vin. I, I learned a lot through that process and I was exposed to a lot of great artists. The Chronicles of Riddick had an amazing art team on it. And I met people like Matt Codd, Steve Berg, Phil Norwood, really giants in the industry that I hadn't been exposed to before. And it really helped me to raise my bar quite a bit. Yeah. Ready Player One with Steven Spielberg was was great. He was very gracious. Um, I actually collaborated with him on a scene that was really cool. Let me tell this part, okay? <laughs> I, I, I want to sure. tell this part uh, because okay. Brian teaches storyboarding and we've even co-taught storyboarding. And there was one time where he was teaching a semester and on the first session of the storyboarding class, uh, he had me substitute for him because he couldn't make it to class in time because he was working with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> oh, gosh. What a feeling. Yeah, that, that was kind of cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah. What, uh, what scene are you talking about, Brian? Uh, and what was your role on the scene? This was a scene where uh, one of the characters, the lead girl, and it's been a while and I confess I haven't seen the movie. Oh, man. <laughs> you don't want to say that publicly. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no. Can we cut that out? It's no. a good no. movie. You That's should see it. Yeah, so I've heard, I've, I've oh, heard, I heard it's a really good movie. I just tend to get a little busy. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, this is a scene where the, the, the lead girl is running in the oasis, in the digital world. And she's actually interacting with a character that's outside the digital world while having to fend off characters on the inside of the digital world. So, the, the problem solving was as she's running and firing, shooting from a point of view that's telling both those stories at the same time. Um, yeah. Now, I don't remember too many of the details of the scene, but I, I can tell you that uh, the other guys had bore, had done their sequences and presented and then it was my turn to present and steven goes oh i, I had an, an idea for that scene <laughs> and i was like oh well god okay so that's it for me and he he offered up his idea which was really great of course <laughs> and then i got to go up and stand up next to him and, and present to him and i mean he had like this wasn't just like an office with steven and a couple of guys it was the team of board artists and it was steven and it was like like 10 or 12 other people, producers and a bunch of people. It wasn't as casual as these things normally can be. Uh -huh. Here I'm in the unenviable position, you know, <laughs> of having my sequence that I thought, well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show Steven. And then he comes up with, oh, well, here's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so then I presented my idea just expecting, okay, great. That was good, Brian. Good job. Now we're going with Steven's. Mm -hmm. yeah. But Steven basically said, no, we can – we can tie these together and incorporate these both together. Mm -hmm. And he did, which was, you know, that's what I remember. Uh -huh. I don't remember and the details cool. of the scene. I remember thinking, 
you know, expecting not necessarily to get shot down because it was a bad scene, but certainly it to be disregarded because Stevens was so strong. Yeah. So it felt like a real win when I thought it was going to be a, a lose. Were you, you know? were you nervous? Of course. Yes. Who wouldn't be? Yeah. <laughs> I know of students who want to be storyboard artists. And I think a lot of them who want to be storyboard artists, at least at the beginning, don't understand what that means. I remember when you got your first job at Deke, Brian, and I wanted to be a storyboard artist and I didn't do four storyboard jobs, maybe three, before I decided I don't want to be a storyboard artist for a few reasons. <laughs> One was that I found out that nobody cares about the drawing beyond what its function is to help something else get produced. And so, any preciousness or concern with making the drawing look nice seemed to be wasted. Another thing was that I just did not have the skills to sit down and draw frame after frame after frame of things with different camera positions and do it rapidly. Uh, so, what I want to hear about from both of you is what are the specific skills that you would recommend to a student to be a storyboard artist versus a comic book artist and which ones do they have in common? You went from comics to storyboarding, is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Tell, tell us about the differences in your observations. Uh, you want to take this one, Brian? or, or uh... I'll take it brief and then you fill in. Okay. Um, so, I would say the biggest difference, the most obvious difference first and foremost is with comics, you have to design a page rather than just your panels. And in comics, you do a little bit more keyframing, less sequence designing. You're still telling a sequential story, but with a storyboard, you're creating a sequential map that the entire team has to be able to follow. You are, in fact, the first translation from word to visual in the process. You're like the, the needle on the old photograph. You're the first one to take that for the director and show him, you know, how it's going to be shot in most cases. Uh, with comics, there's a lot of space, time rather, in between frames. You know, you can just show the bam, bam, bam of the action. But in a storyboard, you might have to show the actual how he reached around into the holster to grab that gun. So, sequence design is really the heart of storyboarding. You really have to think like a camera. And one of the things I tell my students to do regarding sto storyboarding is start being aware that you're looking at the world. Start seeing everything through your camera, through your two eyes, and start sort of shooting the world. See how you would shoot the world. I also, you know, I pound them about things like composition, of course. Um, but Dan, why don't you pick that up? Obviously, there's the um, consideration of the craft. You know, one of, one of my absolute favorite sequences from Spielberg happened in War of the Worlds where it starts on a newscast. You're, you're clearly looking at a newscast. Suddenly a hand comes into frame and turns the television off. Reflected in the television, you see Justin Chatwin, who plays Tom Cruise's son, who is uh, argue, they're having a discussion and the, the camera slowly drifts back from the television to reveal Tom Cruise. Uh, talking to his son and you get all this information in this one one shot so the i i enjoy that part that's the part you're talking about sequencing but there's also working in television working in movies you're you're also have, having to consider limitations of budget 
or location or how long they may have an actor, things like that. So learning as much as you can about the actual production of a movie or, or a TV show is very, very essential. Where I find differences, I found it much easier to go from comics into doing storyboards because with boards, there there's sort of a list of, a, a short list of things that you need to know. You need to know what a master shot is. You need to know what over the shoulders are. You need to understand what basic coverage is to, to give information. Uh, you have to understand not crossing the 180 line. The very, very sort of great guardrails that if you stay within them, you'll, you'll at least be serviceable. You may not create the next best sequence in the world, but you're going to create something that is absolutely readable and the information can come across. What I did find it very difficult to do is to go back from, from boards into comics for the very same reason that you brought up about the design aspect of things. You know, with storyboards, we have, uh, we're, we're creating something that we know there'll be sound, there'll be soundtrack, there'll be dialogue, there'll be camera movement. In a comic book, because of the graphic nature, you have to consider not only how it flows in American comics, top to bottom, left to right, but in blocking on a storyboard, you don't have to worry about who's talking first. You don't have to put them frame left and prominent. You can put them in the background because it's sound. You do that in a comic, that person that's over frame right can't talk first because the word balloon has to stretch all the way over to the left. So you're you're having to deal a lot more with the graphic nature of things in a comic versus storyboard. So I found after doing, you know, uh, was 2003, so almost 20 years of boarding, uh, coming back to comics was much more difficult because of the mindset, the storytelling. Had I just done squares but, or, or rectangles, it still wouldn't be the same as boarding because, again, the person who talks first is generally on the left of frame. Mm, that's interesting. Do you have a preference? Mm, I, I like doing boards because um, they you can move in and out. They're, even though the only people that know you're good are, is production, your producer and your director. They go, oh, he's good and I, I'll, I'll have him back. The rest of the world, like you said, they don't know. Uh, I do like to experiment in boards. Brian's seen my boards. They're more detailed than they need to be because I just like, it's like uh, R&D for me, you know? Oh, what'll happen if I try this, you know? Uh, I like comics for the fact that it is, you're, you're, you're the director, you're the actor, you're the, the, the DP, you're the, you know, the production designer, you're, you put your name on it. You're the author. Yeah. Uh, that's, that in itself is fun, but you know, Brian had touched upon that, um, you get a bit of psychology in that where you, you know, you mess up, it's your fault. You know, yep. you, you do something on a board that looks, you know, ugly, you know, uh, the eyes are wrong or whatever. They don't care. She's, you know, where she's supposed to be. And it tells the story and move on that tells them, you know, what to do. And the, the other thing about storyboards too, is to understand exactly what you're facilitating because boards are not, uh, the same every time and commercials, they're proof of concept. Sometimes they're a contract between the production company and the agency. 
So they want to see exactly what it is you're shooting. Uh, for a television show, it's very similar because they're moving so fast. Um, on a movie, it helps spread across departments so they know what's on camera. We don't have to build that, that third wall. It's never shot. We only need this much. We need for the DP, he goes, oh, I only have to order this many lenses. I, we're never going to use these. So they, they help budget. They help communicate to the rest of the crew. Um, they're, wow. they're fun. Yeah. If That's I could cool. really quick, just jump back in there real quick, just to distinguish. First of all, the, the sequence design of boards, which is not really the same thing as in comics, you can get very passionate about that. I find, I find that to be one of the best parts of doing boards. But one of the advantages of comics, like for us to go back and actually just go do comics full time wouldn't be feasible. A, a guy with a mortgage or, you know, it, it doesn't pay for the labor, but what you can do is you can make a movie that you don't have the the budget constraints of making a blockbuster movie that you would if you were filming it if you want to write a story and draw it out all you if you have the time you can produce basically a movie of your own that no one has any say over yeah uh, and in in today's market of course that's very valuable because you can then take that and use that as a selling tool to sell, sell a movie or a tv show good point Dan, you mentioned that there, there's only a few things you need to learn about storyboarding, like the different shots, the 180 rule, stuff like that. Um, has the storyboarding industry evolved at all? Like, has have things changed in the way things are done? And big time. Um, just yeah, was there any evolution that you've seen in the past few decades? Yeah, I remember the very first time. That I learned that, you know, Brian, I have, I have to say, you know, Brian is, I, I consider him one of my mentors. Uh, you know, I, I had my grandfather, I had a friend named Fred uh, that, that helped me out. Uh, Brian's a, a mentor and showed me a lot of the ropes and my buddy Audu, I would consider another one. Uh, when I first saw Brian doing storyboards, he used to lug around this big giant case of markers and you know and it was all done on paper and any sort of revisions were either done and paste up and even when i started boarding in 2003 we weren't doing it digitally of course we were scanning them uh but there you know we would if we met with a director we would scrawl things down on paper and that sort of stuff but now there's it's a, a lot different i have a friend named mark simon who does boards on, for the walking dead and a couple other shows and he builds everything in storyboard pro and and he creates animatics for the, for the client and um, the mm. fact that we can do it digitally and you know and with this pandemic one of the biggest evolutions i've had uh is you know when i first started working out here in atlanta I'd have to drive an hour and a half down to Conyers to the production company and sit in person while someone sat over my shoulder and watched, you know, what I was doing. And uh, now it's a Zoom meeting and uh, it's, it's, it suffices. You do screen share and, and uh, what you see is what they see. And, and, you know, if you work fast enough, when my, my, I, my uh, roughs are fast enough to communicate an idea and I go off and I work. So um, I, I think like, man, if I had these tools in 2003, I, I, I wouldn't have believed it. Wow. So like in degree of like how they're executed, that's changed. Mm -hmm. Um, also the, the, the advent of CG, 
a lot of uh, computer-generated stuff in in films and in advertisements because uh, it's not in camera. A lot of that stuff needs to be boarded now. Where you know the something that normally wouldn't have been boarded would be boarded because they want to make sure they have it right before they commit to putting it into to uh, the computer. So yeah. there's there's little things. You mentioned animatics, and that's a really good point. Like. Does somebody that can do an animatic in roughly the same amount of time that someone else is doing a board, like does that person have a huge advantage over getting the job because it like, I mean, I, I imagine that an animatic provides a lot more uh, information to the team and the crew. Is that? I, I think it would, but you know, with, in Mark's case, I'm not really sure what his pipeline's like. I know that that's what he does, but I I feel at least for as fast as I work, that it would be counterproductive because he's doing scratch audio. He's sort oh, he's of doing like, audio too. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's doing scratch audio. He's also kind of uh, saying how long a shot should be mm-hmm. and, you know, how it cuts. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like that, that could, as a, as a, being a director, I've, I've, I've held a lot of the jobs that, um, I ha- I was directing, so I've done character design, I've done backgrounds, I've done layout, I've worked in animation, I've worked in live action. If I was a director and someone gave me my boards as an animatic, I would want them to not give it to me in that way because it, it locks me into a place that mm. I may not want to be in. Okay. I'd rather have a series of flat images that I can uh, adjust and work, and especially in mm. television. Um, that stuff gets cut up in 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 so many ways. I I don't know. I mean, it's a it, it'd okay. be a, it's a curious question. That I don't. I I have no yeah. real answer to. Yeah, Brian, you wanted to. Th- yeah, I, if I could just real quick ju- throw something in. Yeah. Uh, more often than not, nowadays we board artists are are asked to pitch content. We are actually providing bits and gigs that are not in the the script itself. In fact, on Christopher Robin, I was supplying dialogue at times. But so there's you're going to be pitching stuff that is cold, so you need to be able to you know do that, and when you get a no, produce you know an alternative. So if you were to go to animatics with everything, I don't think it would be productive. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, okay. they really, for the most part, most films have like a previs team eventually connected to them that take all the boards and make animatics, and eventually they do 3D animatics. But previsualization is to essentially see the movie in the time that it's going to unfold so that you're liking or you're watching a, a rough version of the movie rather than You'd looking at You'd be surprised. It's not that rough anymore. Right. I mean, it's, it's because if you saw some of these things, they are so developed. Yeah. And, and I'm talking about a live action movie. Yeah. You, you, they have actors running around, 3D characters running around. It's, it's quite yeah. elaborate. I, I imagine that this, you know, the need for an animatic or, you know, all this pre-visit depends a lot on the project. Like if, if you're doing something like... Um, Endgame? Sh- yeah, or shoot, what the hell? I can't remember. Gandalf, uh, Frodo, what Lord the hell? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. If you're doing Lord of the Rings and your, your production is so expensive, I imagine you want to get everything figured out. As well, much that, as possible. That has things to figure out that absolutely are necessary. We haven't yeah. seen dwarfs 
walking past, you know, ogres and humans, mm-hmm. that that has logistical issues that I could see. They need to check all the way through. But when you're just shooting a normal film, mm-hmm. you really yeah. don't need right that that level. Yeah. No, that that makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Got it. <laughs> Brian, I remember when you were working on a movie that was a a big multi million dollar extravaganza of action adventure with submarines that got canceled. Hunter Killer. Yeah, it was one of the, the guy who directed uh, Casino Royale. Casino Royale, Martin, yeah, yeah. Martin Campbell. I, I have nothing but praise to heap upon Martin Campbell. Yeah. Uh, certainly, he's one of those directors that I, I feel really good about. One, the guy's really brilliant. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. So, every time I work with him, it is, it is absolutely an education. Um, he's, he's got, in fact, on Hunter Killer, what was so much fun is he would, he has it shot in his head already and he's basically just telling me the shots and he would pick up his toy submarine and he'd, he'd say, okay, come get up on my, get over on my shoulder here. And he'd set up the shot. So he was seeing it and I'd be having my head next to his seeing the shot, you know, right next to him. It was a very, it was a fun collaborative I, I wish I wish Martin was doing more now um, yeah. because uh, after that, he called me for every gig. Yeah, I remember when you were working on it, you were very happy about your role in it. And you were the main guy envisioning the movie, as I recall, right? Yeah. In fact, now that you mention it, I worked on that for five years through a number of directors. Anton Fugua was on it for a little while. Dave Tuohy was on it for a little while. Um there's probably a director or two I don't remember, and then ultimately Martin, and then, I mean, we were in Alaska. Yeah, I remember. Uh, we, we we were powering through it. We were up there for a couple of months. It uh-huh. was quite an experience, and it all fell apart. Eventually, it got, it did get made. Gerard Butler was in the was the star when we were working on it, and sure enough, it did get made with him, but with a different director. Okay. Well, well, yes. When you were working on it, one of the things because I was watching you teach during that time, uh, you solve problems with storyboarding, with whatever it takes. As I recall, you were using 3D. You were oh, yeah. lots of layering in in Photoshop with with positions of things, color coding. You worked out your own system of arrows, as I recall. Uh, That's so, yeah. there's another thing is that not every storyboarder works the same way. You do whatever you need to solve the problem and it seems like you innovated in the process that whatever you've got, you've got a deadline to get this done, how many frames yeah. a day, all of that. I would say that that's very much the case. Most guys are – because there isn't like a storyboarding school where you come out of and everybody works on the standard template or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're you're trying to – in the most economic dynamic way, communicate to the team in stills what this motion picture is going to do. So, you do need to come up with conventions of, you know, how are you distinguishing action movement from camera movement Um, and indicating sound like Dan was saying. I mean, even though we're doing drawings, we do want to do some kind of indication of sound. When I board, I board to the dialogue when necessary, you know, you want, you want to land in a close up when the guy says, you know, you, you shall not pass. You know, you don't want to do that in a long wide. You want to indicate in the board when you go to that close up on him, that's where the line is. You don't lay down every line of dialogue, but in the sequence, there's ebb and flow that, that builds to certain moments and you want to make sure that 
everything is coordinating your camera action your 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 actor's action the dialogue that that all has to come together so that when you're not there somebody can read your map and understand it uh, there's another uh, another thing since there are some people watching this and listening who do not want to be storyboard artists or comic book artists but I'm hearing some general lessons uh, that are useful for all artists learning to draw and also knowing story. Composition. Composition, yes. Picture making. Can't push that harder. Every great piece of artwork is great first and foremost because of its composition. Great artwork you recognize from across the room. Yes. And that's the composition. That's not the painting technique or the pencil technique. Right. So, so it's vital that we all understand what does what uh, arrangement of elements does to your audience emotionally. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Everything is more exhilarating when you're on your motorcycle. Just like your bike is more protected when you choose Progressive Motorcycle Insurance. They offer coverage for your bike, starting as low as $75 per year. And they keep things affordable with discounts like paid in full, multi-policy, and responsible driver. So raise your kickstands and get to quoting at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. $75 premium is for state minimum coverage. Not available in D.C. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. And, and also, here's another thing. How'd you get your education? <laughs> I bet we both uh, started our educations by just copying comics when we were, you know, kids, like most most kids do. Uh-huh. Eventually, you know, you get to a point where you sort of start to take yourself seriously. And then eventually, you realize, okay, it's either time to take it seriously or not do it. And then educate yourself either through the schools or through Bridgman Loomis. Nowadays, kids can go online and find so many resources you learned a lot from books then. I'm assuming that How oh, to Draw yeah. Comics the Marvel Way was part of it. Not for me. I know for, for Dan it was. For me, it was more Bridgman, Loomis. I went through the Hogarth books and you and I have talked about this many times, Marshall. I found them to be very artificial. Um, a book that I have found in later years that I want to recommend to everyone is Framed Ink. It's the closest yeah. thing to like a like a supercharger for narrative uh, illustration. The guy's an amazing compositionalist. I love his drawing style as well. I wish I could pull his name off the top oh, of my Marco, head. Oh, Marco. Marco. Yeah, but That's you, right. every, every book he does is good. He just does really quality work and uh, teaching. I, I would say that too, but I would say Frame Dink is yeah. the pinnacle for him. Okay. That one, at least for me, that hit me hardest. Yeah, but that wasn't there when you were studying. That's for the, the people no, that are studying no. now. Yeah. And you went to, you went to school. I went to a school back in New York, Parsons, that had a lot of big name teachers in it, but they the teachers did not connect to the students, at least not to me. When I went to Fullerton, there were teachers that absolutely connect with with me, and they they told me about the the way of life. The you're all you're always on as an artist. You wake up as an artist. It's not something that happens when you hit the time clock. 
Brian, Brian, clarify. This is Fullerton Community College. There's often confusion. Yeah, often confusion. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. This is the community college where you and I both went, and it was Bob Miller, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Nick Bora, mm-hmm. Don Hendricks, Graham Booth. Yeah. Those teachers in particular, I felt they made me understand what it meant to be an artist when what it felt like to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was such a scatterbrain going into that experience, and coming out of it, I felt like I kind of had my feet on the ground for the first time artistically. Uh, I want to mention how we met. I kept asking Don Hendricks, my teacher, my basic drawing teacher, uh, and, and other drawing classes too, how is it that comic book artists and animators can draw out of imagination? And he was honest. He told me that he did not know how. And I said, but you went to college, right? And he said, yes, he had graduated with a master's degree in studio drawing and painting. And I said, and you never, he said, they never taught us that, Marshall. And I asked him for a year or two, how do they do it? He said, I'm going to find out for you. And eventually he said, I want you to meet a guy who knows about how that's done. And I said, you mean the way comic book artists are? Yeah, he knows how that's done. And he told me about you and he put us in contact. This would have been about what, 1983 or so? Yeah, or 82 even. Yeah. And uh, and sure enough, Brian kicked my butt and let me know you need to you need to study Bridgman, you need to know how to turn it into form. It was it was really uh, uh, an eye-opening thing and a brutal thing too, because Brian gave me grief for not <laughs> knowing how to do this stuff. <laughs> so Brian well, is to br- blame about the Bridgman obsession. I, yeah, it is partly, except that I, yeah, I did not get Bridgman. And Brian was taking me through the book saying, look at that, look at that. You've got to be able to do that kind of stuff. Well, well, how? And so that was, that was what put me off onto, I was about 24, 25. It, it put me off onto the next stage, which is by 26, uh, hearing it from Drew Struzan too, that I was realizing there was a big gap in your education of not knowing how to draw in the classic way. And Brian was trailblazing with that. He was the only person that I was around personally that was trailblazing with that and learning how to draw out of imagination. Cool. Okay. That's cool. Uh, We wouldn't have Frazetta or Bernie without Bridgman. That's right. Well, we would have them, but they would be different. That's that's true. <laughs> they didn't give birth to them. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Metaphor. Right, yeah. We got to give their mothers. Yeah, yeah that's uh, right. Everybody gets credit. credit. <laughs> Excuse me, Mrs. Rosetta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but much as I got a lot out of Fullerton College, it wasn't necessarily like obviously take as many life drawing classes as you can. It was it was what they taught me about being an artist more than the drawing chops. Um. I do find that some of it is we are drawn to what we're passionate about. And that's the thing that we want to consume quickly and we get good at it. And unfortunately, my my view was very narrow at that time. It was only later on that I took a bigger, broader view of things like design and composition, which I've become evangelical about now. I mean, that's one of the... When I'm teaching, it's one of like six things I tell the students. This is the most important thing. Yeah. Okay. we'll, We'll pick that up. We'll pick that up about what you teach. Uh, Dan, how about your education? I learned exclusively from books and my grandfather who taught from the Betty Edwards book. He, he was a, uh, an artist for UC Berkeley. He did, you know, art 
that you would see in their brochures and things. And he was a, an accomplished oil painter. And uh, when he, he taught uh, at the community college, he taught from the Betty Edwards drawing on the right side of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a lot from comic books, uh, of course, Bridgman, Loomis. I had a very similar reaction uh, as Brian did to Hogarth's work. I, f- I found it to look like twisted bronze balloon people. Uh, and it just didn't connect with me in the same way that Bridgman did. Bridgman felt solid, whereas uh, Loomis felt soft. And I felt if you learn both of them, uh, you can get there. And of course, how to draw comics the Marvel way. I mean, that was really uh, very educational for me, not, not only on the tools to use or the vocabulary in which to speak about the subject matter, but the the constructive procedural nature of doing a comic book. Uh, but like, like Brian, uh, I was also very narrow sighted in really focusing on what I was interested in. And it wasn't until I saw books uh, by Bruce Block uh, called the visual story and another one, another one called the, the five C's of cinematography. Yeah. Uh, those two books re- really affected me. Uh, in a major way, but I was self-taught and I, I didn't have a chance to get any advanced education as I was hired to draw comic books right out of high school. Okay. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Brian, Brian had me read five C's of cinematography way back when. And, and uh, I, I think the world of Bruce Block's book, that's great to hear. And also uh, Loomis and Bridgman being uh, a balances to each other. Loomis is yeah. easier to understand. Bridgman's hard to understand. Well, that's because mm. Loomis is literal. It's drawings of figures. It's people. But yeah. Bridgman translates it into the wedges and blocks, which enable us to sort of – it simplifies it in a lot of ways. But it's more than that. He was not confined in his gestures by figures. Mm-hmm. His stuff is much more dynamic. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love Loomis. But Loomis, in many ways, is – a guy that could really draw beautifully, and he drew figures for us and taught us about them. Bridgman translated it into this language that about the dynamics of the figure, not just what the figure looked like, but the angles and the gestures that spoke to power and grace. I think those are the valuable things from Bridgman, much more so than like making a figure look realistic sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. One of the yeah. things that we keep uh, mentioning about Bridgman is that he gives permission gives permission to to invent, gives permission to exaggerate and extremify and turn into things other than what it literally is, so that a person should not, and he stated explicitly, a person should not come out doing what he does. It's the it's supposed to inspire you and, and put you off on your own journey to come up with independent and better ideas. A building yeah. block. And in regards to uh, newer books, even though the book's probably about maybe 10, 15 years old. One of the books that I really enjoy now, series of books that I really enjoy now that I wish I had when I was learning uh, is a series of books by a guy named Michael Matezzi mm-hmm. called Force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Force, I mean, he's great. He's a wonderful resource. I watch his YouTube show. I've had him on my show, interviewed him. Um, he really teaches you how to make things feel like they're moving and that they have weight and that there's, you know, active forces moving within a figure. Uh, again, I, I, I wish I had it when I was younger. Yeah, Mike teaches on Proko as well. We've done several um, 
videos with him and working on a course actually. So awesome. He's yeah, great. Mike is, yeah, he's he's great. <laughs> um, I have a question. If you unless you've got a question, I, a question. Yeah. I did. I just forgot it. Well, <laughs> why don't I go ahead with mine it. and then you can pick it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Go ahead. Can you tell us any experiences where? Without mentioning names, where you had really great flow on a job with a director or editor or art director, and other times where it didn't work, and that afterward you recognized why it didn't work. Yeah, uh, they for me the there's a particular director I've worked with. Uh, I've worked with him since 2004. So much he so much so that um, they generally leave me alone and just say, "Hey, take a look at this and send send what you got to me." There's minimal changes. Um, he's gone as far as asking me to do direct second unit on some of the spots because he he likes the way I see things. Um, that's that's been a key situation. Again, you know, the we're, we've done we've worked together for 17 years. Um, the flip of that was I had a director that we were on a feature and there were some key sequences and, uh, I kept saying that we need to get these things done. And I was being very mindful of when, when we were shooting on the schedule and they kept kicking the can down the road, you know, let's do it tomorrow. Get, get see them tomorrow. Oh no, no, I don't have it yet. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's do it, you know, Friday. And, you know, the, the time's dwindling, 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 and, and I'm constantly making suggestions of like, just let, how about let, just let me interpret it and then you can work with that. Um, and no, no, no. And then it got, you know, two days before they were shooting the sequence and it was probably a good week's worth of work. And then they just told me, uh, yeah, go, go ahead and go do it your way. And, you know, I, I, I actually left, I, I talked to the producer. I said I need to fly home. I quit the job because I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna do you know a week's worth of work over a weekend. It was just too much. So that was the only time I've ever like walked off a job was because of this um, kick the can responsibility thing. So we've got two things going here. One is when somebody hires a a an artist, they want a they want reliability and they want ideas and they want skill. Uh, there's also a thing that when you have a choice of working for someone that you care, that they are going to communicate with you clearly. Oh, yes. That makes a world of difference. That makes it either storyboarding a job or work. Mm. You know, communication is the key. I mean, actually, what we are doing in essence is communicating. We're communicating the, the script visually to everyone. So if this if the director particularly if they have a direction in mind that is counter to the script up front they should be telling us unless they're looking to foster new ideas out of us and let us take a shot at it on our own it's it's and Dan and I've talked about this many times all the guys and I have the thing that really sucks the creativity is not if you do a sequence and they come back with revisions but if they you do a sequence and they come back with a, like a completely different take on it, and it's really due to their sort of negligence. Yeah. 
Um, you know, if everybody is in it together and doing their best, revisions that or changes, you know, a new scene, doesn't matter. You're all on the train together. But I've I've worked with, like, like Dan has, I've worked with directors that I'm still friends with. I mean, you, you get very – the storyboard artist has a very close connection to the director. I mean, you're yeah. really – on on some projects, you are their right-hand man, mm-hmm. at least in the term that you're working with them. Once you're gone, somebody else is their best friend, I'm sure. But the, the worst thing I find, like, I've got many of those stories where it's been great. You know, just a, it's a pleasure. The worst is really like when there's not much involvement by the director. They're either overwhelmed or they're just interested in, like, talking to the are actors and they're not really interested in the, you know, the making of the designing of the film. Uh, that's, you know, that can take a little bit of the enthusiasm out of it, but you know, no matter what, even on its bet on its worst day, they are paying us to imagine. So it's sort of like pizza, you know, even bad pizza. It's pretty good. <laughs> Let's talk about educating students toward being professional comic book artists and professional storyboarders. No, because that increases our competition. So let's end this here. Yeah, but you're old. Uh oh. <laughs> and it, there, it, there is dignity in just going out gracefully, <laughs> graciously, and turning over the reins to. No, Marsh. The, the only value is is that hopefully they will hire us. Well, that, yeah, that happens too. <laughs> that's that's a great thing. It's like being kind to your grandparents. Okay. Uh, well. I know that you teach, Dan, I know that you teach and you've got quite a teaching presence and Brian and I have co-taught together. We've co-taught a whole semester together in storyboarding and and uh, yeah. anything else that you didn't say that you want to say to students who are ambitious toward entertainment industry careers generally or specifically? Be reliable. Hit the hit your marks. If you say you're going to deliver your storyboards at a certain time, either be early uh, or on time. And also the old adage that you see from someone like Andrew Carnegie is if you deliver more than you pay for, eventually be paid more than you, you're delivering. Yeah. If I can update a little, uh, because I think that's a great adage, but especially in our industry, there will people. There are people that will exploit that and take yeah. advantage of it. And when they realize that you can do sixty frames a week or sixty frames a day, whatever it might be, then that's the expectation. I'm not talking quantity. I'm talking about uh, being pleasant in service, uh, asking the right questions, being super professional. Because I've worked with board artists on the directing level and had people not not understand uh, things or, uh, you know, not ask the right questions or be given uh, very clear directions and not follow through with it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not just talking quantity. I'm talking the, the full experience. Gotcha. Yeah, that, I agree with that. makes sense, yeah. Dan. The, the, uh, what Brian brings up, though, is also a hot issue right now because of what's going on in the entertainment industry at the end of two, uh, 2021 yeah. with the, uh, uh, the overwork of uh, people who are told you're privileged to be in this industry. Exactly. You shouldn't be, That's what you it shouldn't is. Be it's sort of a privileged it. industry. Right. Uh, but, right. But I do understand though that you're, you're, this is not specific advice for any one particular discipline. This is 
this is general advice for becoming a professional, which is to get known as really good and and then become in demand and then the price goes up. Yeah. Which I've seen both of you work that way is to deliver good good things that make people invite you back, even if you do have quiet periods where you get out of the industry. Another thing I got out of there is that don't expect that because you're hired now that you'll be hired a year or two or three from now. Absolutely. Oh, you have to stay on the edge. You have got to stay, you have to keep practicing. There's, you're never done. I mean, mm. and actually that's kind of a good thing. I mean, I don't say that with animosity. I'm happy to be pushed to do what I love so much and get better at it. Mm -hmm. But you do, you have to stay up on the tech you have to see what other artists are doing because um, when when I started in boarding, boards didn't look the way they do now. They were done S on some stone. Did. Well, yeah, right. They were done on cave, <laughs> cave walls. <laughs> um, but I mean, like Dan was saying, uh, some of us work tighter than we probably should and the stuff looks like a graphic novel. Um, it's not necessary, but you're so into it you know, you kind of you're always pushing to be better, but I did want to I did want to hit on specifics. You were asking, what would you say to a storyboard artist? You know, someone that wants to get in, become a storyboard artist. Absolutely, drawing. You know, we can't we can't undermine how important the drawing is, and it's not the, the thing is it's not how pretty you draw. It's that you need to be able to draw almost anything out of your head from any angle. So it's not about drawing perfectly or photorealistically. It's about understanding the fundamentals of primitive shapes so that in your head you can move a camera around anything, go around that pencil sharpener or through that keyhole. It also, of course, helps to have a fertile imagination because you're gonna, you want to be able to imagine that key going through a keyhole or down someone's throat. And what's that going to look like? You want to have a fertile imagination. That's going to come mainly from looking at great art, reading great work, stay, stay smart, stay well read, you know, be open to the world and to ideas. Mm -hmm. And I did want to say, and I should have said it earlier, nowadays, like I said, we're asked to provide content. So, you need to know story. 100%. You need to understand what motivates a character and what, what actually properly motivates a character. And how does that look? You know, what kind of body language is going to describe that person's emotion to the audience without dialogue? So, story is vital. It's the only job in entertainment with the word story in the title. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if, to, to piggyback on what you're saying, Knowing how to draw and how to draw at every angle is definitely uh, essential, but I will, I will counter it with good handwriting doesn't make a good writer. Uh, if Shakespeare wrote his sonnets in purple crayon with his left hand, it would still be Shakespeare. Um, it, great storytelling and understanding of cinema is essential as well. So watching movies that you enjoy going back and asking why did they make these choices how did it how did it elicit this response out of me what was it about this sequence that did that because you can you know when i when i taught um some layout theory a few years back i had the students 
draw a man walking out of his house in his slippers picking up the paper and and uh, three different ways. I mean, the choreography is the same. He's walking out of his house, picking up his paper. One was to be sort of whimsical. One was to be suspenseful. One was uh, uh, just to be um, uh, uplifting, to make you feel good at the end. It's the same action, but it, it, the music of it's different. So um, that's the kind of stuff that I, I try to get people's head around is, is how, how do you manipulate what you're telling in your sequence to elicit that, that emotional response in context to the rest of the story. That is a project you give the students to have it was, some yeah, mundane it was. activity done three different ways with three different emotional goals. Yeah, but it's the same. It's the same man walking out of his house getting a paper. Okay. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's dreading what's going to be in that paper. Maybe he's uh, excited. Maybe you know to get the winning lottery numbers. You know, something like that. So it's you know we have. With storyboarding, we have uh, only the camera to convey that, you know, with once it gets put through all the processes, whether it's music or, you know, the, the, the chirping of birds or whatever, you can create those sort of things. But, you know, taking it back to comics, we don't have motion. We don't have a soundtrack. We don't have the chirping birds. So it's, it's how you decide to frame it. And, and the context between each of those panels and how they relate to one another that will give that viewer that, that emotional response that you're hoping for. It's good to hear about the projects that you give students because the people who do not have you as a teacher, whether in a classroom or online, though they may, uh, because you, you do teach online, correct? I do. I, I have a, a YouTube channel where I will discuss different ways to learn. One of the main things I try to do and implore people to do is to be and do their best each day. Some people get discouraged. They may be uh, at a different skill level, you know, than they want to be. I always say comparison is the thief of joy. The only person you really need to compete with is yourself. Obviously, it's great to have role models like uh, Brian Murray or, or uh, Neil Adams or whomever, but, you know, concentrate on on being the best you um that's that's really like the the backbone of my channel and and i give little tips and techniques of these things that we've been talking about and you demo right i do some demos sometimes sure yeah uh, wait i'd just like to guarantee that dan is in fact the best dan he can be i can guarantee that i am i am great brian i know that you've got all sorts of projects for students because I've been there watching the students doing them, some of which are very valuable. Can you tell us about any of them? One of the first things in the class, which I think surprises the class, is I have them writing. Uh, from the very beginning, I have them writing, and eventually I want them to write a story that they're going to board for their final. And not a big elaborate thing, but I, that's part of what I want them to, you know, part of the, the story knowledge I want them to absorb. I use things like Michael Haig and Save the Cat. Uh, but, you know, I don't spend too much time because it's a storyboarding class. Um, let's see. I do things like uh, they do movie composition studies, uh, not unlike your composition class where you have master studies. I have them take films like um, Lawrence of Arabia or I'll, I'll let them choose, you know, a, a film and pick the compositions that hit them hardest. 
and they have to do a silhouette study of each of those in the hopes that they'll I'm really f wanting them to understand that vital balance of negative and positive in the composition so they do all their studies in just silhouette don't you have an exercise about where you have them tell a story in different numbers of frames tell us about that what i do is i take a simple action like throwing and catching a ball mm -hmm. and i have them this is the 180 rule i want them to, to learn the 180 rule and for those listening that don't understand this to try and say it quickly it is uh and uh, a, an invisible axis that travels through the action of your scene and your camera can only stay on one side of that action otherwise you will uh, disorient your audience and the easiest way to understand that is if you have an army chasing another army from left to right and we see close-ups traveling left to right of the bad guys close-ups of the good guys left to right Wide shots, bad guys chasing left to right, good guys. If all of a sudden we see a bad guy traveling right to left, the first thing everyone's going to think is that guy changed direction and he's going the other way. Mm -hmm. They're not going to think that the camera went to the other side of him. So this, this exercise is all toward that. So I give them a simple action, toss and catch a ball, do it in three frames. So they have to move the camera around this action in three frames. Then I start having, then I have them do it in five and then in nine, in the hopes that one, they'll, uh, that'll get them to start thinking more about camera angles, changing their camera angles while staying in that 180 degree, uh, you know, restricted area. Do you ever do it the other way around where you start with 12 frames and then make them boil it down to three? Uh, no, I don't think I've ever done that. I'm not sure uh, what it is you're thinking. I don't think that's me. Well, yes, to, to learn economy because some filmmakers like to make as few camera angles as they can and as few shots as they can, as few cuts as they can to make a scene happen in single takes. That tends to be more TV in my experience. Um, in fact, I would say often directors are asking for more than they need in terms of the in-between action. It's, it's not really that necessary to spell too much out. Um, and that's something that I think comes to you having done it for a number of years, you learn what you need to show a particular action and how many steps. And which director you're working with. Since, oh, yes. Yes. It makes a big difference. You know, a new director is a completely different thing than a seasoned director. Uh, I mean, in so many ways, a seasoned director, you can get away with just giving them roughs for the most part, because as long as they can see the composition and the sequence design, they don't need your drawings. But often young directors, I think they... They want to see more. It makes them feel a little more secure. Wow, that really looks finished. Whew, it's finished. You know, mm -hmm. I think that just gives them another little sense of, you know, also I think they probably, everybody likes prettier drawings. So if they can get, you know, a prettier looking storyboard, I, you know, I, I can understand that, I guess. I'll tell yeah. you though, the one of the, one of the times I really connected with Marshall is um, in, in early, well, it was late 2012, early 2013. I had seen the work of uh, Kim Jong-gi. And um, the first thing I thought was that this guy's stuff it has to be a, a, a trick. You know, like it's high contrast. You can't see the sketch underneath. And then, you know, oh, it's backwards. He's just erasing it. You know, like all the things that one would do. <laughs> right. you know? Dan, and, Dan can, will you, do you mind if, I, if you let me tell this story? Go ahead, do it. 
okay, we're we're at Wonder. I go to WonderCon. I see Dan. We start talking. I said, "What have you been up to?" Yeah. He says, I've been cracking the Kim Jong-ki code. As soon as I saw him draw, I figured, gosh, how does this guy do it? Is he tracing it? Is he doing some kind of trick? And then I figured out, okay, no, that isn't what he's doing. He's actually doing it. And so, I've been working on how he's doing it with what he's doing with the drawing skills, but also with the streaming skills and how he can get his imagination going. And I'm working on exercises for that that I'm going to be doing so that students can see how it is that you can draw like Kim Jong-ki. And I'm being able to draw like Kim Jong-ki and I'm starting to do I said, Dan, just wait a second here. Why don't yeah. you not tell me this here at WonderCon? Why don't I have you come in to my expressive drawing class at the junior college and tell them and tell me at the same time? So, we did that and he came yeah. in and took over a whole evening of drawing and he did a demo and he gave me the original of it and the students yeah. remember it. That was like 2017. The students remember it as a pinnacle experience of their, yeah. their community college uh, education that Dan came yeah. in. And I took notes on it. It was so yeah. informative for all of the different things about you gave a list of things to do to concentrate on the yeah. flow of images that go through your head. Yeah. And the 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 uh the nurturing of that flow of images. And well, I don't have my where, notes here. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I could tell you where the list came from. Uh, well, so before you get into that, I just want to yeah. add on to Marshall's quick that he brought you in. You spoke to his class, yeah. and I brought you in. You spoke to my class, and you told my class the story that you just told us about that show you did with the guy who's got the long member, and yeah, you're, yeah, tell, yeah. you're telling my class of mixed students all about that. That also was a pivotal class <laughs> for my students in a different yeah, way. You went to so, HR, didn't you? Right. So, you, please continue, Dan. <laughs> uh, so, no, what, what, what happened once, once I had realized uh, that it wasn't a trick, that Jungi wasn't doing a trick, that it was legit, I started asking questions of why I could not and and I I wrote down a list a very systematic list of I can't because I don't have quite the visual vocabulary that he does if you ask me to draw a car engine I don't really know what a car engine looks like uh I peripherally I do but I'd have to fake it then the other thing was is I can see image at the time I could see images in my head that were kind of fleeting but they were flashes and most of the time as a comic book artist, I would race to the board and try my best using the fundamentals that we all learned, the basic building blocks that we learned from Bridgman, how to draw comics, Marvway, Loomis, uh, Hogarth, wh whoever you learn from uh, and, and try to capture it, but not in the way it, it was more constructive and procedural, not being able to just draw it. So, there, there was that. There was also the uh, the problem of what I see and what I draw don't necessarily match up. And then lastly, uh, we all, I mean, at least everybody I've talked to has had the issue of being married to the results of something and feeling like they're failing and, and they give up before, it, you know, it's that old, that old cartoon where you see a guy who's mining and uh, he goes, ah, screw it. And he turns around and walks away and he was inches away from the big you know, gold mine. If he had only just hacked two more hacks, he would have hit it. Um, so what I did is I said, okay, well, the first one is, is the first one of not having a a, a vocabulary, visual vocabulary is is creating sort of a set of 
um, observation techniques, working big to small. Whenever I would observe something, I would look at the big shape, how the little shapes relate to it. If it was a, a, a big scene, I would try to find where the point of view was by finding the horizon and the vanishing point, kind of knowing the, or the lensing on it, if it was wide angled, if it was, um, you know, a, a shorter or long lens, uh, I would break those things down to almost their essentials, you know, like it, it, you can get away with an elephant, a child can get away with drawing an elephant by just drawing big ears, a trunk and sort of that shape. If you drew a BMW, you can get away with drawing the silhouette, the grill, and uh, the symbol, and you, you would still read it as a BMW. So I started um, every, every morning going on Pinterest and sort of just looking at things that I normally don't, like engines or tractors or parrots or frogs or whatever, and trying to distill the essence of what they were. But then, of course, you run into the problem of uh, why can't I hold images in my head? I, I hear about people that have photographic images or memories, and I've talked to Jung Gi through his translator about um, his technique, which happens to be completely different than what I figured out. It, I, it's a different way of skinning a cat. You know, he he told me he basically imagines imagines bounding boxes that he fills, and and. And to me, I'm like, oh, shit, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, shoot, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and uh, But it still didn't solve the being able to hold that thing or manipulate that thing in my mind's eye in a way that it was so vivid, it was as if it existed. So what I, I remembered reading this book called The Einstein Factor, and in this book, there's this technique, and the Einstein Factor is written by this guy named Dr. Wynn Wanger. He has a website, winwanger.com. Everything that I'm about to tell you is available for free on his website. He has this technique called image streaming, where it's uh, essentially daydreaming, but you, uh, you get yourself in a, into a meditative state. You close your eyes, you get a recording device, and you, you, you uh, verbalize what your mind's eye is seeing without censoring yourself. You say it in present tense. You say it with as many senses as you possibly can. It smells like, feels like, tastes like, you know, looks like all of the above. And you start off small, like 30 seconds, and you just record it. And then you stop and you play it back and you listen to it. And when you listen to it, you try to remember it as if someone was telling you a story, but because you imagined it and dictated it, your brain will replay it almost exactly how it was. So the last step is to replay it again, but transcribe it by hand. Don't type it. You have to transcribe it by hand. What that does is it slows those moments down. Huh. I, re I still remember my first image stream. I was running behind a mouse in a field and he was kicking up dust and like I felt like I needed to sneeze and all this stuff. And I wrote that down, but as you write it down, it's almost like uh, pausing on a on on a movie and taking it slow. Yeah. Uh, and what happens to the neural pathways in your mind is it goes, "What the heck is this guy doing?" You know, I need to do more of this. It's it, you know they say practice makes perfect. Anything we do, a lot of we get better at naturally, and that's because the elasticity of our brain and the way our bodies work, we're made in a 
wonderful way by our creator. So this was something I found. The byproduct I found was that my the the visuals and my capacity to hold these visuals and manipulate them was giving getting more vivid and the 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 length in which I can hold them in was getting stronger. So that settled number two. But number three was you know, many people can have a potted plant or, or whatever, do a life drawing in front of them and it doesn't quite look right. You know, you get warped or the proportions are wrong. And, you know, Vilpu, I remember, created a, a series of things to to look at with, you know, the horizontals, the verticals, the diagonals, the, the, the S, the C, the negative space. But uh, that that won't do you any good. But what I found was that there was a, a technique in the Betty Edwards book, uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, that she had taken from Nicolaides' Natural Way to Draw, which was blind contour drawing. And I don't know, I, I know uh, Justin Sweet used to use that, that Intuos tablet. Brian, you used to have one too. Before we had Cintiqs, we drew on those, those uh, digital tablets. We were drawing down here, but our cursor was up here. So what... Yeah, I know, but but blind drawing is a lot like that. You you pretend you have a cursor uh, in in your in your vision, and you move your your hand without looking down at the paper. Sure, when you look down, it's all warped and all you know overlapping lines. But what is happening in your neural pathways is you're connecting what you see and what your your hand is doing to be one and the same. So that's solved being able to. Get your v- visual vocabulary, be able to manipulate it in your mind, see it clear, and then be a- being able to transpose it from your imagination onto the paper. But then, of course, people get that, that intrepidation of, oh, man, I, I, if I draw with a pen and what if I mess up? That's being married to the results. The simple answer for that is get a pen that you hate, uh, and, and I mean it, like a pen you hate, a uh, gel pen or a ballpoint that sucks. And just say, I'm only drawing with this for a week. Uh, it's the only thing I'm allowed to draw with. I can't pick up a pencil. This is it. Uh, you start forcing your, your brain to be okay with decision making. And uh, when you combine all four of those things, you get the, at least for what I arrived at, was the same thing Kim, G, uh, Kim Jong-gi does. So that was, that's how I figured it out. But of course, Jung-gi is uh, a lot different. This is valuable. And you're mentioning yeah, that there's more is. ways to do it than one. Yeah. And what you just mentioned, Dan, reminds me of practicing with your non-dominant hand. Yeah. Uh, it's like working with a bad instrument. It's that you are not making a beautiful line with your non-dominant hand. You are trying to communicate something yeah. and you have to embrace, let go of any desire to make a beautiful line. I'm trying to communicate this thing and it, it puts the focus on that. This reminds me, Stan, a lot of what we talked about with the in response to Daniel Coyle's book with the, the talent code is slowing things down mm-hmm. and working on the neural pathways of getting used to, in this case, image streaming. I thought that was very useful about the, the tape recorder and the practicing looking at the images. You know, out of all the things Dan mentioned, my favorite of the things he worked on was the the image he drew of you, Marshall, on a toilet. 
<laughs> Dan is confused. He's like, what? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's not that's not Marshall, that's Alfred. Oh, is that the one of Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know who Alfred Marshall. is. Who is Alfred? Is that Alfred in Batman? I don't know who Alfred is, but it looks yeah, just that's like Batman's Marshall. Alfred. Oh. Yeah, that's okay. Alfred pooping. Uh, my, my my buddy my buddy uh Christian had a Batman sketchbook and uh he said I'd love for you to contribute to this book and I'm flipping through and I see Batman, Robin, Penguin, Joker, 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 Harlequin, Harlequin, Poison Ivy. And, and, and only two of Alfred on the toilet. So, he None, figured. <laughs> zero Alfreds. Zero. And I said, why aren't there any Alfreds? He said, nobody picked Alfred. I said, well, I would like to. He said, what are you going to have him holding sandwiches saying your, your lunch, sir? I said, listen, <laughs> yeah. man, Alfred does a whole lot more than bring For Batman Bruce. lunch. too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he poops I said, for Bruce yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, I said, let me let me have that sketchbook, and and uh, I went off with it, and I provided that. So the, nice. there's a lot of storytelling <laughs> in that image. There, you can see uh, Batman's cowl is in the laundry hamper. Alfred is reading right. a comic, but he's on his second cigarette, which means he's been there for at least ten minutes. His uh, toilet paper <laughs> is on wrong. Right. And you know it's his ah. personal bathroom because it's got um, Home and Gardens magazine. And then I wrote my signature in toothpaste. So yeah. I, I, I wanted to have some fun. Oh, and Pooby Gone. Don't worry. Don't yeah. forget about the Pooby Gone spray because, you know, fresh air. All right. <laughs> wow. Any projects you all want to do that you haven't done yet that you're excited about? Dan, we'll start with you. I'm having a great time working on my book, Black Flag. I have a uh, very long and fun story to tell that culminates into a crossover with my other characters. So I'm very invested in making my books, making music, making my YouTube show and making my comic. That's what I like to do. And of course, you know, trying to be the best dad and husband I can be as well. That's cool. Brian, what are you working on and what do you hope to do? Uh, well, I'm, I'm working on a story as well. I've been on, on it for about two years. Uh, that I'm feeling very, very strong about. Uh, in fact, the image that's behind me now is produced by a good friend, Steve Berg. Steve's kind of famous for doing a lot of Ridley Scott's concept art. And uh, this is a story when I have bounced it off uh, my respected peers that are good for crushing ideas when they're not good enough. I got enough positive response that it fueled me to really press forward. So, at this point, I've got it written and I've now written it in a stage that I can start drawing from. So, I'm going to produce it as a graphic novel and with uh, Dan's advice, I'm going to crowdfund it as well. Great. And maybe since you've been teaching for some time in college, maybe you'll be available as a teacher online. We'll see. That That is also part of the future plans thanks okay. to your advice. Yeah. Uh, to well, uh, two advisors in the chat with me here. As I've told both of you, it just I don't know how you guys manage to do it. I, I tend to get so busy that, you know, I, I can squeeze things into what little time I have. But, I mean, you guys tend to be very prolific, particularly with this online sort of stuff. Well, yes, like you you have mentioned it, that it's it takes the – setting up the infrastructure for it takes a lot, a, a lot of time. And Dan's been at it for a while. Mm. And, yeah. and so have I. I enjoy teaching alongside both of you. Brian, I'd love to teach storyboarding again with you. Uh, even beyond the the rooms of the college. Oh, I would too. Public. So, maybe we'll do that. We'll see. I'd love that, Marsh. I'd sign up for that course. How do people get hold of you, Dan? 
Fregaboom on Twitter, for, uh, Couch Doodles on Instagram, or Fregaboom on YouTube. And let's spell that for people who are listening. It's F-R-A-G-A-B-O-O-M. You did it. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yep. And Couch Doodles? C-O-U-C-H-D-O-O-D-L-E-S. Okay. Great. Brian, and how do people get hold of you? Okay. So, my website is adobe1.com. And, Spell uh, it for us. It's A-D-O-B-E-W-A-N. Uh-huh. And uh, you can find my Instagram and my other social media links down below. Is that the right thing to say? <laughs> okay. Uh, because I don't really, I'm not really up to speed with those as much as I should be. Because you're working in the industry and you do really, you haven't had any motivation to go out and be public. That's why I hoped you would be here so that other people would know about what you do and that they can learn from both of you. Well, I do hope to increase that presence uh, okay. with both of your help. Okay. Brian has an ability to kick people's butts. I've seen it. I've been on the receiving end of it, but he's very gentle and, and affirming with students. He's, he's loved as a teacher at the junior oh, that's college. That's sweet. Thank you, Marshall. Stan. Yeah. Are the names of these, these properties, these shows, these things that they worked on, are they any kind of nostalgia for a fellow millennial? Yeah. Yeah. The, a lot of the stuff that was mentioned was, was very big stuff. <laughs> Any the, why? Yeah. Why do you ask? Yeah, I, I asked because I don't know most of these. I, I had oh, really? yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because they're not big to Marshall, is what he means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, no, that's the, they're big deals. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, bye, guys. Have fun. <laughs> Take it easy, man. Good meeting you. Good meeting you, Stan. Yeah. yeah, nice to meet you guys. I hope this was valuable to you who were watching it. I hope so too. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. See y'all.